Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce, and I'm flying solo today. Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack is on assignment. Today's guest, religious scholar Melissa Inouye, teaches Asian studies at the University of Auckland and is the author of the newly released book, Crossings. She has lived in Taiwan, China, Japan, Hong Kong, Southern California, Boston, Utah, and of course, now New Zealand. So it's safe to say she knows a thing or two firsthand about how Mormonism functions in the world. She joins us today in studio to talk about her book and her thoughts on the global church. Melissa, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm going to ask you about, because I talked about the title of your book, which is Crossings, but the subtitle caught my eye also. A bald Asian-American Latter-day Saint woman scholars ventures through life, death, cancer, and motherhood, not necessarily in that order. Explain and give listeners a little peek at your personal resume. Um, well, I have four kids. That's the motherhood bit. Um, they're currently ages 13, 11, 9, and 7. I live in New Zealand, but we came there from Hong Kong, where my husband was a lawyer. Um, before that, we were in Los Angeles, and um, both my husband and I speak Chinese and do kind of China-related work. So we've also spent a lot of time living in the PRC um, and other places. Mm-hmm. And why crossings? Well, crossings is a good word for a lot of things. For example, if you have different disciplines in a uh, in scholarship, it's cross-disciplinary scholarship. It t- talks about kind of going beyond boundaries. Crossings is also a word we use to bridge divides. It's also a word that we often use to talk about passages in life or transitions in life. Um, death is a sort of crossing. Life, if you believe in a pre-mortal existence, is also a sort of crossing. Mm-hmm. So I just like the... Um, I like the very many images and meanings that that word evokes because I think they all apply to life and its many contradictory possibilities. Now, the book is fascinating, by the way. I'm really enjoying it. Um, It's a collection of essays and letters, some to your children, um, and some drawings and some other reflections. Why did you write it? So I wrote it because I was diagnosed with colon cancer in April 2017, and I thought, I had no idea how long I would be around. I thought, you know, demise could be imminent. And I wanted to write something that would be kind of like a grown-up conversation to have with my kids, you know, who were quite young at the time. You don't have deep conversations about the meaning of life with, you know, Mm five-year-olds. So it's kind of like um, a literary lifeboat or food storage, thought storage, something like that. (laughs) A year supply or more, huh? Lifetime supply. So, so Melissa, you've lived and worshipped in all these places we talked about, and and you make this interesting statement toward the start of your book. Might be even in, in the in the preface. I've been poor among the rich and rich among the poor. Wherever I go, it seems I don't quite fit in, which is why I feel equally at home everywhere. Now, I'm a glass is half empty kind of person, so that also means that you could don't feel at home anywhere either, um, right? Uh, Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, for me, home is where the stain remover is. Um, where, you know, my family is living and where we are. I, it's true, I've never really fit in. I've always been a kind of outsider in one way or another. I think, you know, most people tend to be that way. Um, but just because I've been to so many different places and kind of moved through so many different worlds 
it just seems quite apparent to me. So, for example, just as a Latter-day Saint um, scholar, you're always on the edges of some sort of um, some sort of world. Either you're too liberal, or you're too conservative, or you're too religious, or you're too secular. I'm always too something. Depending on the crowd you're with at the time, I yes. guess, right? Mm-hmm. You, you also make the point, and I think it's kind of related, of course, is that um, Latter-day Saints should live on the margins. That that's, you say it's the purpose of God's plan of salvation. Mm. Explain that. Well, so Latter-day Saints believe that we decided to come to mortal existence in order to learn and to have difficulties and to be tested and to learn to overcome problems. And, and we believe that our own, our actual home is, you know, is not this mortal life. And so this is a very marginal place for us. In other words, whole earth existence, Mm. as you see it, is sort of margins. Uh, Let's, let's talk now a little bit about Melissa, about your experience in different places as you've, as you've lived and been a Latter-day Saint. In your experience, how can the church become a truly global faith without imposing sort of its Americanness on worship? Is it possible to have cultural differences yet still maintain some kind of unity? It is very tricky. I think about this a lot. I study global religious traditions and it's so important for religious traditions to be particular and specific because that's what gives people a purchase on everyday life and also a purchase on the divine, which I think you know, comes, breaks through everyday life. Mm-hmm. So to kind of generally have a faith where you know, we generally believe there's God and there's Jesus, then there's nothing to hold us together. But the problem is um, Latter-day Saint theology is so practical. Everything has to be embedded locally which means the further this church spreads, the more unlike itself it becomes, which is really tricky. It's really a conundrum. I I don't really know what the right way to do that is. You talk about the difference between, I think, universality and uniformity. Mm. Um, And and which should the church be striving for, both, and how do they do that? Well, well, clearly I think universality (laughs) is better than uniformity. Uh Um, And just as an example, you know, I've written before about how in, um, for example, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for a while, all of the church buildings looked like they were just dropped straight out of Bountiful, Utah. They had basketball courts. No one plays (laughs) basketball in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yeah. Um, And and they they weren't adapted to the local conditions. So, for example, they had these full-blown, you know, bathrooms with toilets, but the water doesn't always run. So then when the water's not running, you can't flush the toilet, you can't use the sink, you just have like a big garbage can full of water that people kind of dip their hands into. And that's a bad idea. So um, my my understanding is that more recently, um, the church has been taking steps to make buildings in the DRC that are more locally responsive. So instead of building these kind of massive, um, you know, enclosed church bountiful style buildings. They are now building things like kind of like big uh, canopies or big kind of sheltered areas, like shady areas 
and um, developing areas like the Mango Grove. So you can go to the Mango Grove for, you know, Relief Society or Elders Quorum, as opposed to, you know, this American style, let's march over from this closed room to this, this closed classroom. room. Yeah. yeah. So you think the church then is making some strides, obviously, you believe it probably needs to do more. Um, is the church equipped to make these kinds of changes? Um, I, I mean, does, does, the, does the structure allow it? I think it does. The centralized nature of the church is a liability and an asset. And um, the liability is that if you're not really paying attention, the kind of um, cultural center of gravity where most people from that organization come from, the Wasatch Front or you know, North America, becomes very influential. But once it kind of becomes aware of the need to take in more information and, and to kind of gather information from the bottom as opposed to pronounce from the top, then um, it can be very effective because it's so centralized. And I have seen recently um, the church has con conducted very extensive uh, survey work um, in our own ward in New Zealand. Um, we were asked to, you know, fill out a survey on how the youth were doing and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think um, from that point of view, it is really well equipped. And the new hymn book, for example, the new um, plan for a hymn book, they um, are trying to create a hymn book that includes, you know, the treasured music and um, lyrics from many different countries. Uh, again, a very tricky project, very admirable. I went to the um, the survey page where they take feedback on the hymn book, and I looked at it from the drop-down menu of all the different languages in which that survey was available, and it was dozens and dozens. So I was very impressed. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the hymn book can be on microcosm of maybe a structure for, I mean, a, a model of how the church should go maybe about that. You know, it's mm. they're going to have one uh, a hymn book that, everybody kind of sings and unites, but they're going to have a separate one sort of or separate auxiliary things, right, for the different cultures or places or nationalities. For instance, national anthems are not going to be in the regular hymn book. They'll be separate. Um, do you think that kind of, that's sort of an example, don't you think? That would be great. That, yeah. That, that this, this will happen. I also think we wrote a story once about the wards in Hong Kong, where there are a lot of uh, mainly, I think, Filipino domestic workers, almost all women, probably, if not all, and the structures are different in those congregations. Could you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So in Hong Kong, in the non-Chinese branches, so the kind of international district, the English-speaking population mostly, um, there are, the majority of those people, members of the international district, are Filipina or Indonesian domestic workers. I think it's like 90%. It's a very high percentage. And um, that becomes quite striking when you go to you know, listen to general conference in English in, in Hong Kong because you're just surrounded by this sea of um, Filipina nannies, basically. But um, in those branches, because there's predominantly female the Relief Society president is essentially the leader of the entire unit. There, there are branch presidents as well. 
uh, who were kind of brought in as missionaries who were brought in to be branch presidents or something like that. But um, but essentially, it's an all-female unit. So the ward clerks are women. Um, you know, the Sunday school president was women. The mission leader is a woman. The executive secretary is a woman. So all these positions that you know we're used to thinking in the in the United States are these male-specific positions are actually run by women. And you know, God is apparently okay with this. So and and they don't all meet on what we would all say Sunday, of course, their Sabbath varies, right? Right. So um, domestic workers in Hong Kong are, are given by law one day off per week, but they can't specify when that is. So sometimes, you know, the employer gives them a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Saturday. And so to accommodate them, the church uh, calls what I might say is a very unfortunate missionary couple. I say that <laughs> tongue in cheek. <laughs> Who, whose job it is to have church, the full-blown program of the church, including um, sacrament meeting, release society, elders quorum, um, institute, you know, everything, every single day of the week. And for them, Sunday is their free day, and that's their day to go shopping, go to Disneyland, um, just kick back. Wow, that, that's yes. quite different. It's yes, pretty hardcore. So now, when when you describe the the congregations, there it sort of leads to my next question because I wanted to talk about some of the topical issues facing the church, and and one of them certainly is, um, I guess you could say, sexism quote inherent in the church's patriarchal system. In other words, in those words, those things that traditionally go to men are being filled by women. Why can't that model be replicated anywhere? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, clearly God is not um, having a problem with the way that things work in Hong Kong. And, and so what could the church do, let's say short of priesthood ordination, which appears to be right now, for, for women, appears to be off the table. What other things could be done to be able to help, I guess, equalize? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book is ways in which we can you know, in which Garden Variety Latter-day Saints can shift the culture just in how we talk about um, women and the ways in which we imagine uh, God. So, for example, Latter-day Saints have to... um, We have this very cool theology of a mother in heaven, but we don't use it enough. And um, we used to talk about mother in heaven more. And in the book, I I point out these many ways in which this was kind of part of the way that we regularly talked about deity, mother and father God, you know, our mother in heaven, um, who is co-creator with the father in heaven. We can talk about that more. And I think the church is moving in that direction. Um, If you look at the April General Conference address from um, President Russell M. Nelson, he said, um, the covenant path back to our heavenly parents. So I think there's a real move to kind of harness the energy of this secret weapon. But um, you can only do so much from the top down, actually. The cultural change has to also be embraced at the bottom. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to kind of show how for young people who are growing up in the church, these kinds of conspicuous differences in how we talk about men and women are very consequential. And there are so many things that we could do, you know, without having to be the, you know, the massive policy changes or the doctrinal changes are above our pay grade. But there's so many things that we could do to more um, visibly demonstrate uh, the value and um, 
authority of women in our congregations? I mean, you talk about one. Um, for instance, um, presidents of the Relief Society or of any of the auxiliaries headed by women, um, don't we don't refer to them, meaning the church, as president. Right. Like, and, and, and that's w- a departure. Which is, which is exactly what they are, right. of course, and what mm. they were originally called was mm. were presidents. Um, that would seem to be a simple change. Yeah, those kinds of things. Very simple, very easy. You know, Emma, and if you look at the early minutes of the Relief Society, they talk about President Smith and President Smith. There's President E. Smith and President J. Smith. So you know, Emma Smith was President Smith. And, and you talk about top-down versus uh, bottom-up. That's something the grassroots could easily embrace. Yet when President Oaks gave sort of an offhand remark at a recent general conference and referred to female president as president, when his talk came out in print, they took that out and changed that. Um, so it seems like the top-down may still be a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know what's going on at the top-down. <laughs> but... Um, but you know, the, the nature of Latter-day Saint ecclesiastical hierarchies is that they are very closely tied to the grassroots culture. That's where people come from. That's the pool. Mm-hmm. And they don't live in a bubble. They have families and friends, and they go to wards. So let me go back to Heavenly Mother just a little bit. Um, I, I can't count the number of times we've interviewed just on Mormon land uh, women talking about they wish that was more fully embraced, and the church with its essay, a very short essay, admittedly, on Heavenly Mother, seemed to green light, okay, folks, you can talk about Heavenly Mother. Do you see that starting to happen at the grassroots level? Or does it still raise eyebrows? Um, I don't think it raises eyebrows. I think people are just not in the habit. We've gotten out of the habit in the past 30 or 40 years, so it's hard to get into new habits. Um, I just, I I do think it is about habits. So um, I'm just trying to think, you know, in in our ward in Auckland, uh, I I sometimes, I occasionally hear the word heavenly parents, uh, the term heavenly parents, and we, I occasionally hear the term heavenly mother. I say it all the time, um, (laughs) but... But I, I think we're just not really in the habit. Do you think it's also because church leaders have said so little about her? Of course, yeah, and that's why we're out of the that habit. Would, that would help, of course, <laughs> right, if more were known. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Jana Reese's research in her next Mormon survey shows that the, the, the gender issue is significant mm-hmm. for young people growing it up. It is. Um, have you noticed that? And, and Absolutely. What could be done, especially we're talking about some of those things, especially for young people to help with that. Well, as I say in the book, the, over time, there are shifts in moral common sense. And when these shifts occur, we shouldn't panic. That's what happens over time. There's change over time. Um, I think in the past, maybe the past couple of decades, Latter-day Saints have tended to see um, a word like feminism as politically loaded, as um, edgy and left-wing. But the way that culture has shifted, I believe that this belief that 
incredibly. Women and men should be treated equally, have the same kinds of abilities and competencies. Um, this belief is now mainstream. So since that's um, now a mainstream belief, we should recognize how bad it looks when we have these kind of drastic visible imbalances or when people's um, girls experience when girls experience at church is so drastically different from their experience, you know, at work or at school or in the other activities in, um, in which they're involved. Right. You and Jana both know that, as a matter of fact, sometimes the only place that young girls or women experience this kind of gender barrier is at church, not anyplace else. Right, that's, that's a problem um, because, the, you know, church should be at least, um, at least if not noticeably better, at least not noticeably worse than the rest of everywhere else. Let's talk about the label Mormon versus uh, Latter-day Saint now a little bit. How is that going in, like, in New Zealand? Um, are, are, are people there embracing it? Or is the media embracing it? How, how, how have you noticed uh, any change? I really haven't. I mean, Latter-day Saints are a very small minority in New Zealand. I don't even know if the media pays attention to us at all. Um, in fact, you have a prime minister who was raised as a Latter-day Saint. Right. right? Um, so it must be appearing a little bit more now, right? Not really. Not so much. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, because she officially left, so right. there's not that much to talk about um, from the media's point of view. Though I'm very proud of her, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are trying to use Latter-day Saints more often, though uh, the term Mormon does slip out <laughs> through long-standing usage. Um It's really, I, I am more interested in how this works. You know, I haven't been in Taiwan recently. Um, I'm interested in how this works in non-English languages. As far as how it translates uh-huh. to it. You know, because it's very, it's, it can be quite clunky um, if it's translated into, I'm just thinking of a couple And maybe even give a different meaning than what's intended. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I know we've heard examples of that. Yeah. Do you think it's a good exercise, though, for the members to go through? The exercise of using uh, yeah, uh, uh, the term I mean, Latter-day Saints? One of the Saints. goals was, uh, I think, from President Nelson was to focus, although using Latter-day Saint doesn't do this, to focus more on the full name of the church and, and Christ and things like that and not the nickname. Hmm. Um, I don't know. We're so weird and small in New Zealand. I don't think anyone <laughs> really cares about us. So um, <laughs> the nicknames, the real names, I, I actually just haven't really paid attention to that. Um, my impression is that the no one is really aware that you're not supposed to call Mormons Mormons. And you try to you try to follow New Zealand the, society. Yeah, you try to follow the the policy in your book, of course, right? As I read it, um, although there are places where you're quoting other people or historical contexts and things like that. So you've tried to adopt that. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always used um, the term Latter Day Saints and Mormons interchangeably, mm-hmm. even before um, the official directive. So now I just use Mormon less interchangeably. So it's not, it's not like I never said Latter-day Saint. I said uh-huh. it a lot. Can, can I talk about another sort of current issue uh, the church confronts, and that would be the now rescinded LGBTQ 
exclusion policy as it came to be known, and then the subsequent reversal. Um, how has how did the policy when it first came out? How did this? How did the members react to it when it first came out, and then the reversal where you've lived? Uh, when it came out, I was in New Zealand. Um, when it first came out, I think um, there was, I, I could tell among some younger people that they were aware of it and um, that they were uncomfortable. New Zealand is a pretty is a pretty good place to live if you're LGBTQ. Um, most people refer to their spouses, their husbands or wives as their partners. So um, they'll say my partner, and that could mean their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their husband, their wife. Um, so actually, when I first moved to New Zealand, I thought that everyone was gay because they were talking about yeah, their partners. partner. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, a, um, it's a pretty comfortable place to be that way. Um, and so I could tell that some people were a little uncomfortable. You know, some people don't follow all of these things that are happening um, in Salt Lake. However, when the policy was rescinded, um, I did notice a lot of kind of online rejoicing and um, and support. I, I felt a sense, I felt that there was a sense of relief, um, not just among younger people, but among older people, like people who were grandmas on the stake release, you know, on the award release society page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, I think people were paying attention. In your book, you talk about like sort of these hard issues, and this was one of them, I think. You make a comparison to electricity. Could you explain mm. that? Yeah, so for me, the... Um, the 2015 policy raised this issue of the tension between charisma and institutions. Um, what the policy was was a kind of boundary-setting exercise that reinforced the kind of rules and um, the policies that the institutional church wished to enforce. And um, it introduced enforcement mechanisms, right, which were seen as devastating by, by those who experienced them or by those who loved people who were um, affected by them. And so in that essay in the book, I talk about this tension between charisma and institutions. And I say that um, charisma is kind of like that, that power that you know, comes down, that, that it's hard to control. Um, everyone wants it, but it's also dangerous. Um, if you have too much charisma, then your religious group just splinters apart. The early church was an example of this. You know, there are many splinter movements. People saw angels. People um, had all these kind of miraculous occurrences. So there, that, that charismatic power um, spins off different movements. And what institutional power does, it's like the insulation around the cable. It holds things together. In some ways, it protects against certain things. So, for example... If um, a bishop in a ward decided that um, had this revelation that he was going to start sacrificing the children to God, just like Abraham in the Old Testament, you know, there's a handbook for that, and and it says, you know, abuse of children cannot be tolerated in any form, and there's kind of disciplinary structures to deal with that. So my point is that um, charisma and institutions need each other; they they work together, and it's tricky because if you have too much institution, you choke off that power, that thing that gives people joy, that makes them feel that they're participating in something sacred. If you have too much charisma, you also lose track of the project. And both are needed, mm. as you see it. Right. Um, 
You also write, and this this was interesting to me. You say it makes sense to address people's sincere concerns in an open and safe setting instead of treating them as taboo or suspect. Do you think that happens in church services and meetings, or you know why or why do you think it doesn't? Well, um, I think that faith is a fragile thing. A Latter-day Saint testimony meeting is an example of how people try to strengthen faith by by sharing their faith and with others. And I think sometimes we have this fear in our congregations, and I have had this fear myself, that we can't handle difficult topics. Or if someone is doubting or has serious disillusionment, we have to distance ourselves from that person because it might be contagious. And um, I think when you look at the example of Christ in the Gospels, he did a lot of things. Um, you know, the, he did many things that would have other people of his time would have feared, would have kind of tainted him or made him ritually unclean. Um, he hung out with lepers. He hung out with people who, you know, ha- had bled from um, childbirth. He had publicans. Yeah. Yeah. The list goes on. But he was he was not afraid of contagion. He just, of course, he was Jesus. Um, <laughs> but but I think we can follow that example and um, and have faith that the power of Christ can help us deal with any challenge if we keep that as our guide and our our support. A church spokeswoman once said that the church should be a a safe space to talk about anything, but quite often when we talk with people, if tough things are brought up, um, like you say, not only is it ostracized, maybe ostracized, but cut off. You know, in other words, uh, let's not talk about that. Those kind of, that's what we hear from people that happens, which seems to preclude really any kind of help or, or um, allowing other people to maybe help or to offer advice or, or say, well, I've experienced that too, that kind of a thing. What can be done to change that culture? It seems to be a cultural thing. Hmm. I mean, in the book, I also have this essay called Conversations are Like Casseroles. So Latter-day Saints are really good at helping each other um, in certain ways. Like, we're really good at helping people move. We're really good at um, bringing meals to someone who's had a baby or who's sick. We're really good at that kind of time-intensive, kind of physical, productive labor, like food, moving stuff. Um, Where we're not as good is in conversations. And, um, but I argue in the book that that's also a form of labor and we should not be afraid to do that kind of work. And we should be just as willing to give 25 minutes to try to understand someone and try to connect with them as we should to spend three hours helping schlep their flat screen TVs and very heavy dressers. You know, it's, it's, it's just a form of labor and we can do it. And I think it's really important um, to understand how when people have drastically different assumptions, 
it's really hard to understand each other and be be kind to each other. So so often in those situations that you just mentioned, you know, where um, someone tries to raise doubts and they're just kind of shut down, it's because our assumptions are misaligned. And over and over again, I found that it's not that people that I, my interlocutors, um, who we could say like more socially conservative, it's not that they're unkind people. They're some of the best people I know. But I'm using language that they don't connect with. And if I can figure out how to rejigger my language, um, then we have much more of a common ground and we can work together. So, so much of this is about just building relationships and taking the time to, um, you know, work from areas of common ground to, to make a little more space in the middle. You, you also, I think, write about uh, partisan issues or, say, let's say, political kind of partisan issues that come up. And you kind of had a formula. And I remember one of the points in there that you had was to sort of assume goodwill. In other words, assume that these people aren't trying to be offensive, right? That, that, that they're well-intended, even if you may not agree with them not always easy to do. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's the, the formula of, that you mentioned is actually the Conventions for Dialogue developed by the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, um, started here by Randall Paul at Utah. But I have found that those conventions really work. And um, so often, if people feel that, you know, this is something that I learned when I was working in my kids' preschool, a co-op preschool, which is people will not respond to you, will not respond to your influence unless they think that you love them. And um, I guess we, we can't love everyone in the same way. We don't know people that well. But if you at least assume goodwill then um, and, and give someone your respect, then they're much more likely to be susceptible to you, to your influence and to your ideas um, because people are generally intelligent people who want to be good and you know Latter-day Saints have been raised in primary to try to be like Jesus and these are things that we want to do so I think it's possible to have these conversations if we remember the common ground and, and try not to fly off the handle when someone misunderstands us which I do all the time actually I'm, I'm I'm, I'm very bad at that, so I, I'm always trying to apologize and, you know, fix things and kind of back up and, yeah. But I think those are very productive conversations. So that could be a good prescription for Congress right now. I don't know. But <laughs> here in the U.S., but well, one last question, Melissa. Um, what do you worry about most in the church's future, the, the church that your children will inherit? Hmm. So... Um, One thing that I worry about is um, if we can actually be a global church. There is such a vast difference in the between members of the church and not just you know one continent to another continent, but like you know one county to another county or one village to another village. It's um, there's so much profound difference in the world. And the more you study culture and language, the more you realize that those differences are so significant. And so I do wonder all the time um, whether we can kind of live up to our potential, which is that we are a small, weird, global religious group. And that's um, a really extraordinary opportunity 
because we're small and weird enough to try to really do the same thing on a global scale. You know, we're so particular. It, it is worth everyone's time to the people who are involved in this project to really try to kind of cook together in the same global kitchen forever. So that's both a huge opportunity and also a very daunting challenge. So for example, you know, my children are growing up in a kind of Western developed, very affluent and educated society in New Zealand where there's these kind of certain assumptions about you know, how women should be treated, um, how LGBTQ people should be treated and so on. We share our church with p other people in countries um, which have drastically different assumptions about um, what kind of patriarchy is okay or um, you know, what kinds of sexual expression are okay. And um, the leaders of the church and the membership of the church are having to cope with these drastic differences in what people need and what feels right to them. That's very tricky. Mm -hmm. I hope we figure that out. Do you think there's still, for lack of a better word, an effort to Utahize the church uh, so quite often? Um, in other words, from dress, you know, how, how members dress or are taught to dress or urged to dress to, like you talked about, the buildings to everything. Do you think that still sort of happens? Ah, I think Utah still has a lot of cultural power, but I, I do see conscious efforts um, when you just notice the things that the institutional church is doing, like um, decentralizing um, history repositories and um, the work of doing local history and um, making things more flexible institutionally at the local level. I think that there's a real effort to connect more directly with local culture. Do your children ask you questions about some of these things ever? Or are they just too young? I think they're too young. <laughs> I talk about these things a lot. But, um, <laughs> oh, there's mom again. What, what she's talking <laughs> I, about, right? So. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Any other hopes for the book? Um, I hope the book will help Latter-day Saints see that um, it is possible to live with the kind of vital contradictions that exist within our faith tradition and our everyday practice. And um, if there's non-Latter-day Saints who read it, I also hope that they'll kind of see where, um, where I, at least as a Latter-day Saint, am coming from. Sometimes, you know, you, if you, um, you're like at a scholarly gathering or something and they find out that you're a Mormon, then, you know, you just see this kind of change of expression. They think you must be a moron who hates people. Um, but that's not what I think I am. So I hope that the book will kind of illuminate the complexity and the difficulties as well as the beauty of a Latter-day Saint life. Great. Melissa Inouye, thank you. Thank you so much. So much for being here. The book, again, is called Crossings. It comes highly recommended. And thanks to our producer, Sarah Weber, we remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next week on Mormon Land. <laughs>